Welcome to the Health Deli, your local stop for a fresh take on community health topics. As always, we will be serving up some delightful discussion with a focus on wellness and a side of humor. The menu is sure to satisfy everyone from healthcare connoisseurs to those with a casual interest in keeping healthy. Come on in, grab a number, and let the guys behind the counter, Mark, Ben, and Mike, tell you about today's specials. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Health Deli, or as I like to call it, the medicinal delicatessen. So uh, a little bit about how the sausage is made for the people at, uh, in the audience. We actually do a little bit of scripting for these episodes. And so I tried to spell medicinal delicatessen, and it's actually a lot harder than you would think. I, I might have medicinal in my bag, but delicatessen, no way. Yeah. And then I actually felt really bad because when you actually spell it out, it's, it's exactly how it sounds. So well, it was a little bit of a sad moment for me, but you know, I got over it. It's okay. You never know. There might be a sm- silent G in there. That's true. It is an old word, so it might mm-hmm. have some weird old spellings. Uh, anyway, as you may have already guessed, I am Dr. Benjamin Pontefract, and I'm joined today by Dr. Mark Young. Hello. So how are you doing today, Mark? I'm, you know, I'm good. I am good. Yeah. Um, nice. Weather's turning a little bit nicer here in Big Rapids. So you say that, um, and yet I got snowed on when I walked in to the office this morning. Yeah, but I mean, you, you, but just a little bit of snow. <laughs> So I'm the eternal optimist here, you know? I mean, I guess that's true, but I was very cold. I, uh, so I just got back from Ohio. I went to a concert. That feels, I feel um, bad for you. Yeah. I mean, it was pretty good. It wasn't snowing there. So whatever that means. Um, hmm. yeah. So I, uh, yeah, I also am doing pretty well myself. Uh, me and my friends, I was able to take a little bit of time off to visit them, uh, listen to a show, which was nice. Uh, we saw a band and I'm sure you've heard of them. These probably your favorite band. Uh, it's called Great Good Fine Okay. Nope. No? Never heard of them. Not even a little bit? No. Are they great? Are they good? Are they fine? I think, they just I okay? think they're okay. I think they're, they're okay? They're, they're all right. Nice. None yeah. of the above, you know? They're, they're nice. in the all right category. Nice. Uh, Is this in this uh, indie pop that you're into? Um, or pop punk. So yeah, I said pop punk before, but it is indie pop. So gotcha. I, I'm not sure how you guessed it, but yeah, it's very impressive. I'm in touch with that. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so as again, you might not, or you may have, uh, noticed Mike will not be joining us today. Uh, he is uh, away on some business. It's going to be purely a Ben and Mark pod. Um, and so we can really do whatever we want. Is there anything that you always wanted to do, but Mike has never let you Mark. So as I know so much, Mike, Mike, Mike has very little control over me just for the record, but, That's fair. um, That's fair. <clears throat> you know, I've always wanted to fly and learn how to fly an airplane. Wow. So yeah. we, um, we might not be able to do that today. Uh, but we can add it to the list and maybe we'll do a aerial podcast in the future. Ooh, that could be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Cool. Yeah. We'll add it to the list. Um, So the one thing that I've always wanted to do that Mike actually really wants us to do. So we're, uh, he actually plays a role in this is we're going to be talking about medical literature today. And so I know that sounds like a really good time and doesn't sound dry at all. um, But we're going to try and make sure that this topic is one that is, Still pretty entertaining and pretty spicy for everybody, um, even though it is one of the driest topics probably in medicine. I know when I was in pharmacy school, and this is true of a lot of pharmacy students, I had a lot of trouble with interpreting medical literature. Um, it's not a very easy topic. Um, have you had do you have any experience with this? So, uh, of course, you know, and, and as I've been out of school for a long time, um, I, it's hard 
to navigate all of the literature. There mm-hmm. is so much out there mm-hmm. um, that it's difficult to narrow that down. Um, so, you know, I, as a rule of thumb, I try to subscribe to one specialty journal mm-hmm. uh, and then one more general journal um, about medicine so that I can, I can, you know, be in my specialty mm-hmm. and then also kind of get what's going on with the, with the greater medical community. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to do it. And yeah, cause it's first off, it's impossible to keep up with all the oh, literature. Impossible. Yeah. Every month, hundreds of articles are coming out. And if you want to be on top of that, I, I do honestly think it's impossible. The other thing is a lot of these medical journals, it's a lot of jargon, right? There's a lot of statistical tests that they talk about that a lot of people haven't heard of. And it's really difficult to actually grok what is going on in the studies. And so hopefully Mark and I have had a little bit of experience since we've graduated. So we're a little bit better at this now. And we're going to be able to kind of Sherpa everybody through this rocky medical literature topic and keep it light and entertaining. I love the metaphor. Thank you. Thank you. I'm envisioning myself right now with a backpack (laughs) on. Yes, uh, I want to be the goat handler, though. Don't they have goats, Sherpas? Maybe. Ah, we might. We probably should have fact-checked Mountain that goats, yes. I'm sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, today, Mark and I aren't really going to be diving into any particular study, uh, but we're really just going to talk about, you know, why are med- medical studies, medical literature, why is it so important? Why should you care at all about this? Uh, we're also going to look a little bit at a study that was, you know, published by a drug manufacturer. You know, it wasn't by them, but they were heavily involved to promote a new drug that they were developing. And we're going to talk about how you can kind of report your data in ways that's a little manipulative just to make your drug look better than it really is. And then if we have time, we're also going to touch on uh, what happens if we don't have good studies? Like what does bad literature do? How does that hurt us as a society? And so we have some examples of that too, that has uh, still has repercussions today. So that's really what we're going to be talking about. Uh, so as always, the first question that we're going to ask, and the first question I always you know, talk about with my students is why should I care? Again, medical literature, super dry topic. People don't fully understand it. It takes forever to read. So why the heck does this matter? And so in order to really get to that, we need to look at a time before there was any medical literature. So we're going to hop in our time machine and we're going to go way back to the far off year of sometime in the 1900s. So early 1900s, let's say 1910. And so uh, just to get everybody in the mood, uh, historians really don't know what happened back in the 1900s. It was such a long time ago. There was no internet. uh, There was no phones. And also there was no microwaves. So people weren't I don't even know how people cooked their food at this point in time. And I think that's really uh, something that's just lost to history. Uh, but anyway, I was hoping, Mark, you could help us a little bit and give us an idea of what things were like back then in kind of the early 1900s. Sure. So we've just hit 88 miles per hour. Um, mm-hmm. So we've now traveled back to, um, you know, the mid 1800s. So excellent. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk actually about a couple of, of really monumental um uh, points in time for pharmacy anyway, about regulation mm-hmm. of medications and, and how medical literature kind of, um, uh, affected that. So yeah. the, in the mid 1800s, a whole lot of people, um, immigrated from China to help build the transcontinental railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a lot of influence in traditional Chinese medicine. And one of those uh, was this product called snake oil. So there okay. was a, uh, and I don't know how it was derived. It's probably definitely not, um, uh, 
uh, what would you call like morally conscious nowadays. Right. But mm-hmm. the, the cold fact of the matter was that the snake oil actually worked. It had some anti-inflammatory properties. And um, the Americans, of course, as an American, I can say this, that one thing mm-hmm. we're good at is we want to make money on something, right? So we can monetize mm-hmm. about anything. Yeah, we're, we're really good at that for better or for worse. Right. So what happened is the, the snake oil was circulating um, and it originally came from a snake um, species in China and it was brought here and it worked and everything. Well, then mm-hmm. some Americans said, boy, you know, maybe we can use some snake oil from the United States. Um, so they were harvesting um, somehow snake oil mm-hmm. from rattlesnakes. It, it wasn't as good, but, you know, it was okay. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, then there was a guy um, who said, you know, I need to really sell this. And this was kind of, at this point, it was kind of from, you know, wagon to wagon to town kind of deal. Mm -hmm. So he said, I'm going to put this in the back of a newspaper and I'm going to sell this via the mail. And it blew up and he was selling so much snake oil. It was amazing. The problem is that was people started using this, they realized it just wasn't working. And people who Mm -hmm. had used the other products said, you know, that worked, this doesn't. Um, so in 1906, they actually tested that product and found that it didn't have any snake oil in it. It was simply mineral oil. Mm -hmm. So he was swindling a lot of people by doing that. So what happened from that is the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which required drugs or medications Mm -hmm. to have in them what they said they had in them. So if if you're going to say it's snake oil, it better be from a snake. Right, exactly. And one thing I want to just emphasize is back before this law came out, there were probably thousands of drugs that people were just selling and saying it was X, Y, Z thing because you never really had to prove that it actually was that. And so a lot of these products were really just water. Sometimes there'd be like alcohol in it. So you felt like something was happening, Mm -hmm. but essentially people were just selling these products that had nothing to do with what you actually thought you were buying. Yeah. Fun fact. Um, he was never made to reimburse people for the product, mm. um, for any of the uh, funds that he took in and his fine $20, um, which in today's <laughs> dollars is around 500, Okay, but that is no jail time, no nothing like that. So mm. really a slap on the wrist. Right. Yeah. And which, I mean, at the time it wasn't illegal to do that. Right. You're allowed to do it. And right. so, yeah, it, it's a good thing that we have that nowadays for sure. Yeah. So then another more serious, but you know, In the 1906 act, yes, they had to say um, on the label what was in the bottle and what was in the bottle had to be expressed on the label, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But it didn't say that it had to be safe. It didn't say it actually had to work. You just had to make sure you're labeling it appropriately. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fast forward now a little bit. So we've went back in our time machine. We've came up to 1937, 36 about. Okay. And there was a product called sulfonilamide. Yes. And if I remember correctly, this is an antibiotic and sure. it's similar to the product that I'm sure our listeners may have heard of called Bactrim. So it's kind yes. of a cousin to that. Yep. This is a very early antibiotic, mm-hmm. antibacterial. Um, and it worked well, um, it worked comparatively for mm-hmm. the times. I mean, it's nothing like what we have nowadays for antibiotics, but right. it, it did actually work. Um, the, it's, it's notoriously um, in, insoluble. Mm-hmm. So um, they, it was made as a tablet. And it worked well as a tablet, but there was a push to make a liquid form so that you could dose it for kids, basically. Yeah, because children have trouble, you know, swallowing pills. So we use a lot of elixirs for that. Right. So they, so they made an elixir uh, from that and it was generally used to treat strep throat. That was kind of what they were going after. Okay. Um, So 
the, there was a pharmacist at a pharmaceutical manufacturer that said, yeah, we can do that. And he dissolved that sulfonilamide in a product called diethylene glycol. Mm, okay. So it sounds scary and it is uh, diethylene glycol is a precursor to ethylene glycol, uh, which is antifreeze in your car. Mm, okay. And he dissolved a drug yes. in this for children to drink. Yes. Mm. Um, okay. So, you know, this is pre-FDA, right? So mm. there wasn't a lot of checks and balances. So they distributed this product all throughout the United States. Mm, okay. Um, what happened is it was it was toxic. and Yeah. And so the way that this works is it actually gets into your kidneys and kind of just shreds them. And so that causes all sorts of problems in your body. Your blood becomes more acidic. You can slip into a coma. It's really bad news. Yeah, awful. Uh, 107 patients actually died um, from this. Wow. Uh, and the the FDA or the FDC Act, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, mm -hmm. had been drafted at this point, but it wasn't yet ratified or accepted. Mm -hmm. um, so this really kind of pushed that legislation through because the general public realized that we, we needed oversight. So right. it went from the 1906 act where it was just, you need to make sure that what's in there is labeled appropriately to, we need to make sure that this was, that these medications are safe and effective. Um, mm. but that's kind of loose. I mean, safe and effective can mean different things to different people, right? Right. Exactly. There was no <clears throat> firm cutoff anywhere. Um, people could really just say, oh yeah, of course it's safe and effective. I treated 10 patients and they all did fine. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there was no real strict requirements in place at that point. Now, very quickly, I have to mention that diethylene glycol exposure mm -hmm. um, worldwide is still a problem. The last major case I saw was in 2020 or 2021. Oh, really? Uh, in India, where actual uh, patients died because of a, of a local pharmacist that was compounding with diethylene glycol. Oh, wow. So it still remains worldwide a problem. In 1985, mm -hmm. the Austrian wine industry, a few winemakers started mm -hmm. adding ethylene a diethylene glycol as a flavor because it, it actually has like a taste of raspberry, I'm told. Interesting. Do not drink no, diethylene glycol never. even if you like the raspberries. Never, please. never do it, drink it. But anyway, they end up recalling so much wine in Austria in 1985. Mm -hmm. um, they had to take it all off the market, of course. Uh, no deaths were associated. Okay. But they, they took it all off the market. They had so much wine, they didn't know what to do with it. And this is the truth. They actually treated it with salt and spread it on the roads in Austria to take care of the ice on the roads. Really? Yeah, with all the extra wine that they had to waste. Wow. So, um, okay. Just kind of an aside. It has nothing to do with the topic of the day. I just thought it would be fun. That's, that is interesting. Um, but yeah, so definitely don't drink that for yeah. sure. No, no, no. You can use it safely for other things, but it's not for human consumption. Sure. Like if, you know, preventing freezing in your engine. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I hear it works great for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. And so that's some early um, things that led us into why it's so important we actually study our drugs, uh, but we really have one more study. So we're going to jump forward a little bit. The year is now 1962. This is a story that some people may remember. Um, so at this point in time, still didn't have internet, still couldn't ever talk to your friends and family, complete isolation from everyone, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little bit about what was going on with thalidomide? Sure, a lot of our listeners have heard of thalidomide. Um, mm -hmm. It's very uh, famous in a, in, a, in a bad way, of course. Mm -hmm. So thalidomide, excuse me, was uh, used actually over the counter in Europe before oh. it came to the United States, believe it or not. Really? Um, and the it was used for um, insomnia and a little bit of um, nausea as an anti-nausea med. Okay. 
Um, when it came to the United States, actually, a little known fact, it, the, the FDA was in existence then and they had some regulation, but they didn't, mm-hmm. they, they basically, they didn't use good medical literature in their decision-making. It was okay. more of kind of a, a bunch of guys in a room and then they decided yes or not. You know, you kind of pled your case, whether or not thalidomide was a good drug. Um, and so they applied for mm-hmm. approval. One gentleman on that board actually said, no, we can't use this. I've heard of these case reports in Europe where mm-hmm. there's um, uh, genetic abnormalities, so causes birth defects. Mm-hmm. And it was denied on its first attempt. Oh, really? Subsequently, they brought in more people um, who, who changed the conversation a little bit and it gained approval in the United States. Interesting. And so that's a similar process to what happens today, but now you need to bring strong medical literature when you appeal to the board. Um, so yeah, things have definitely changed a bit. Yeah. So uh, over 10,000 children were born with significant deformities because of uh, thalidomide. It was wow. um, yeah, a, a terrible thing. Now, I will say that in and of itself, um, it's not a terrible med. It's just terrible for pregnant females. Mm-hmm. Um, we still use the med. Um, multiple myeloma, I think, is the is the big um, disease state that we still use it in. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so I actually looked a little bit back on this as well. And uh, from what I saw, they did not do any kind of animal pregnancy studies. So nowadays, mm-hmm. that's one of the first things that's done. And you can definitely argue whether that's humane treatment of animals uh, but we do often test medications in pregnant animals to make sure that their fetuses do okay because we don't want this kind of thing to happen. Yeah, can you future. imagine 2022 now? We'll we'll come back up to current day. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine releasing a medication that you're going to give that you're going to market mm-hmm. for morning sickness oh, in yeah. pregnant females mm-hmm. and not doing any testing? Right, that would be completely unheard of. You get yeah. shut down immediately. Yeah, they would. La- it would be you would be laughed out of there. Yes, yeah. for sure, for sure. But so. The one good thing that came out of this is we actually had a new amendment that was kind of drafted as well, right, Mark? Yes. Um, so that's the uh, Kefauver Harris Drug Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, and this requires manufacturers to prove that their medication is effective and safe before marketing it. Um, mm. That was only 60 years ago. Um, so, yeah. so Mike would have been like 20 some years old <laughs> <laughs> at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting that it was such a short time ago that a lot of people's lifetimes, they mm-hmm. didn't have actual strong medical literature. Like things weren't tested. You were essentially testing them on yourself before then, right? Like mm-hmm. we didn't know if it was safe or effective. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I think all of these stories together really just solidify, we need this medical literature. We need to prove that our medications work and that they're effective before we actually give it to a large number of people, or else you're going to have things like the sulfalamide or the thalidomide uh, issues where a lot of people will die or potentially have birth defects, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. In today's world, I just can't imagine a medical um, community without this uh, medical literature. We just depend on it so much. Right. For sure. For sure. Um, okay, so now that we kind of understand why it's so important that we have these studies, we're going to do some very basic, very brief explanations of the kinds of studies that you might see as a non-medical person out in the real world. And so we're going to really divide them up into two categories. We're not going to go into too much detail. If you would like to hear more about these kinds of things, definitely send us an email at healthdeli at ferris.edu. We'd love to talk more about it. Uh, But for now, we're just going to talk about two categories. So we're going to talk about observational studies, 
And then we're going to talk about clinical studies. So Mark, why don't you tell us a little bit about observational studies? So observational, um, most often we call these a cohort or a case control. So cohort just means a group. Um, mm -hmm. For those younger listeners, this could be your squad, you know. Oh. Uh, did I use that right, Ben? Um, I think it's fam. They say fam nowadays. Oh, I'm already outdated. Lit fam squad. Um, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Andrew Shane is- We're looking at the guys it. in the sound booth because they're younger than us, so- mm -hmm. Um, okay, so but the the cohort um, is a group, and really observational. You simply observe them. Mm -hmm. So you're if you're looking for you know let's take uh, uh, um, if you're looking for how medication A works in a certain disease state, you give medication A to some people that have that disease state, and you see what happens basically. Yeah. So let's say blood pressure. So does medication A lower your blood pressure or not. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you could look at a side effect too. Does medication A cause cancer? Mm -hmm. um, so you look at a group of people who are taking medication A and a group of people who are not taking medication A, and mm -hmm. then you see if maybe if there's any any difference. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one, in the, there's a lot of observational studies out there, a lot. Yeah, and that's because they're pretty cheap to do and they're very easy to Fairly do. Fairly easy, yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot easier than a clinical trial, generally speaking, of course. There's mm -hmm. always exceptions. But um, what I really want you to know about observational studies is that you can't really prove a relationship. Mm -hmm. So it makes things uh, suspicious and it piques curiosity mm -hmm. and it, you know, has... It, um, it makes these things called what I like to call posers. So it's a good mm. question. Like, Ooh, you know, that's a good question, yeah. but it doesn't really, it doesn't really prove a relationship. So what observational studies are great for is, um, is a kickoff to a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So we do an observational study to Hey, does, does this medication, um, thalidomide, mm -hmm. uh, maybe cause birth defects in, um, pregnant females, um, and then we do a clinical trial to really to really prove that. So um, I just mm -hmm. wanted to really stress that point to the listeners that observational are not really meant to prove or change practice. Mm -hmm. um, they're just meant to, to spur more research. Right, exactly, exactly. And kind of the main reason for that is because there's a lot of things with observational studies that we can't control for. So we're not telling the patient what to do or the study participant in this case we're just kind of watching them. So if we're talking about blood pressure, maybe they're eating a lot of food that raise your blood pressure. That could potentially affect whether we think this medication works or not. And so we're not controlling that. And the other thing is oftentimes we can see differences just due to random chance, right? Mm -hmm. Like our world isn't a world based entirely on math. Some things just kind of randomly happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we also can't control for as well in an observational study. Mm -hmm. And so those are kind of some of the reasons why we do need those clinical studies. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything further you want to say about observational no, studies? No, just maybe a little bit about, so a case control study, um, mm. a lot of folks get that uh, confused with a case report. Mm. Um, a lot of my students will ask questions about that, but a case report is just one case, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, someone experienced this very bizarre side effect of this med. Mm -hmm. A case control uh, observational study is a little bit different where we we um, we control certain variables about the case, but it's not an N of one. So there's, there's more people involved in that. So. Yeah. And when you say N of one, N just means like how many people are sure. being reported on. Yep. So yeah, case yeah. report, one person versus a case series or a case control would mm -hmm. be multiple patients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I just wanted to make that. Other than that, though, I think um, I think that's um, what I wanted to say about observational studies. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think in summary with what you're saying, Mark, they're great at posing questions and they're pretty easy to do. So you're going to see a lot of these out in the real world. 
Um, but what they really help set us up for are these clinical studies, which Mark was talking about. And so a clinical trial tries to eliminate all of the problems with our observational studies. And so let's just put together a fake study idea to try and kind of give people an idea of what we're talking about. So let's again say we're talking about medication A and whether it lowers blood pressure or not. And so in this case, we're going to identify a group of people. Let's just say 100 people. We're going to say half of you are going to take medication A. Half of you are not going to take medication A. You're going to take a placebo. And so placebo is just a sugar pill. There's nothing really in it. So half people are taking the medicine. Half of them aren't. And then we're going to watch them for a year to determine what happens to their blood pressure. Does their blood pressure go up? Does it go down? What's going on? And then we're also going to control what kinds of patients we put in the study. So we're going to make sure that in both groups, about half of them are male, about half of them are over the age of 50, about half of them have diabetes. So, you know, making sure that our groups look similar to each other. So really the only thing different is that one group got the medication and the other group did not. Sure. And so that's going to help us determine, is it the medication that's causing the blood pressure to lower or is it something else that was going on? More control, it sounds like, than an observational study. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. We're also going to oftentimes try to remove patients that are doing things that might affect our results. We might say, if you're eating more than five grams of salt a day, we're not going to have you in the study because we know salt can raise your blood pressure. So we're going to try and control some of those other things to make sure that it's just the medication we're looking at. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So maybe if, if a participant started smoking halfway through a lung cancer trial... Right. <laughs> right. We'd probably try to get rid of them. Right. Exactly. And so you'll sometimes hear that as an exclusion. We'll exclude someone who's smoking in that case. Sure. Okay. And so that's the general idea of a clinical trial. The other thing I want to touch on before we move on is that we'll oftentimes run some fancy statistical analyses on this data. We're not going to get into the details of what those different things look like. Again, if you're interested in that, send us an email. The only thing I want our listeners to know about is a p-value. So, Mark, I know you've probably heard of a p-value. Um, some of our listeners may have as well. A p-value is what you get out of your statistical analysis and essentially just tells you how likely is it that the difference you saw, so whether medication A reduces blood pressure or not, is due to random chance or not. And so if our p-value is 0.10, you just multiply that by 100, and that gives you your percentage chance. So a p-value of 0.1 means there is a 10% chance that the difference we found was due to some kind of just random occurrence. Yeah. And you know, I'm glad you explained it because I always thought a P value was a uh, post residual bladder volume, you know? Hmm. Mm. So you how much P you had. <laughs> the, the value of your P. Oh yeah. The value um, of your P. Like, can you sell it for a certain <laughs> amount of money is kind of what you're trying. Cause we're American. Maybe. Right? Yeah, maybe. So wow. no, I didn't really think that, um, <laughs> but I had, to, I had to get a P joke in there when you, when you say P value. I do appreciate it. I do appreciate a good P joke. Um, And so in the medical community, really, as long as our p-value is less than 5%, so less than 0.05, we like our results. We say the results are unlikely to be due to random chance. And that's something we call statistical significance. And we'll come back to that in a second. So yeah, p-value less than 0.05 is what we look for. Yeah. Cool. All right. Do you have anything else to add about clinical studies? No, you know, I I often wonder about that 5% value, kind of why we settled on that versus... Three, two, 
Do you have it? I don't know. So I, I honestly don't know either. I know sometimes we'll lower it depending on yeah. certain things, but we won't get into that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I honestly do not know where the 5% came from. But just, just from. to recap though, like a P-value of 0.01 then would be a 1% chance, mm-hmm. um, which would be potentially stronger data. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure, for sure. Okay. Um, okay, cool. So now that we have a general idea of study design, I'm going to tell you about a headline that I saw recently, Mark, and Mm -hmm. you may have seen this too. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is a product called Paxlovid. The generic of this is, and (laughs) you're gonna have to stick with me on this, Nermaltrelvir plus Ritonavir. That sounds good to me. Yeah. You want to give that one a shot? Nope. <laughs> nope. Here you go. You got it. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So we're just going to call it Paxlovid just because the name is so long winded. Um, but that is the brand name. And so this is a product by Pfizer. Have you heard about Paxlovid at all? Oh, of course. Okay. Yep. So it is a medication. It is a tablet used to treat COVID. So I'm going to read this headline for you, Mark. And I just want you to tell me what you think here in this. Sure. <clears throat> Pfizer's novel COVID-19 oral antiviral treatment candidate reduces risk of hospitalization or death by 89% in interim analysis of phase two, three Epic HR study. All right. So I'm going to give you some feedback Mm -hmm. from two camps in my brain. Okay. Mm -hmm. Lots of stuff going on in my brain. (laughs) Okay. First camp in my brain is the non-pharmacist, the non-medical professional. Mm -hmm. After reading that, I see 80, what was it? Uh, 89%. 89% reduction, reduced risk, 89%. Non-medically, I'm mm-hmm. thinking I need this. We right. need this right now. Also, it's hospitalization or death. Two scary words. Right. Yeah. I don't want that. Yeah. It's uh, Yeah. So medically though, mm-hmm. my, my instant, I go to re- reduced risk mm-hmm. and there's more than one kind of risk. Mm-hmm. And so medically I'm thinking, well, what, what is that? Is that absolute? Is that um, mm-hmm. relative? What's that risk like? So um, yeah. What, what, am I on the right track or? Yes, for okay. sure. And so we'll talk about that um, in a moment. The other thing I just want to point out about this headline is a term interim analysis. Mm. We won't get into that too much detail. All that means is they kind of paused the study halfway to look at what the data looked like and just to make sure that it was working appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to kind of get that out of there for everybody too. Sure. Um, so it's not exactly the not same Not completed. Thing. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. Luckily here, the data is pretty similar with the completed study. But oh, if you looked at molnupiravir, which is a similar drug, it actually was dramatically different. So mm. um, always important to keep that in mind. Okay, so let's talk about the actual trial results. And so this is what you were getting at, Mark, and what um, I think is very interesting. There's a couple of things, but this is probably the biggest one. Okay, so if we look at our endpoint, which was hospitalization or death, that occurred in 7% of patients that took placebo, so they took nothing, and 1% of patients that took Paxlovid. Hmm. And so kind of what Mark was getting at is what kind of risk reduction were we talking about? And so decreasing from seven down to one, that is a reduction of 89%. So that's where they got that from but we call that a relative risk reduction. The actual reduction was 6%, right? We went Mm -hmm. seven minus six is one. And so that's really the risk that we see being reduced in a patient. 
What do you have thoughts on that, Mark? Yeah, you know, and the classic example is one versus 2%, right? Mm -hmm. 50% reduction. Well, right. it's not really a fit, it's a 1% reduction. Right. Not as, as flashy. Right, exactly. And so drug manufacturers oftentimes like to report that relative risk because it looks so much better. 89% reduction is huge. But really, when you get down to it, since such a small number of people are hospitalized or die from COVID, don't get me wrong, it's very dangerous still. Um, it doesn't really work that well. Sure. You know, maybe I should start reporting results with like the percent change in relative risk. So then you get a percent of a percent, oh, gosh. which then you'd have some really <laughs> flashy headlines. You would, you would. And I would hate it because I would have no idea what you're talking about. Well, most people don't. <laughs> Fair. Fair yeah, enough. yeah. But no, join the club. Yeah, I think that that's a, a huge part of that title. Yeah, for sure. And the other really big point is an, the idea of composite outcomes. And so if you remember correctly, I said the outcome was hospitalization or death. And so in order to meet the outcome, you just needed one of those things. You had to either be hospitalized or you had to have died. And so that means if we look at just deaths, it may not be that big of a difference. Sure. And so the deaths for this study, 1% of people that took placebo died and 0% of people in the Paxlovid group died. And so that's really just a change of 1%, right? Mm -hmm. And that's such a small amount that it's very possible that all was just due to random chance, I in you. all honesty. If we look at hospitalizations, 1% of people who took Paxlovid were hospitalized versus 6% for placebo. And so really the change we saw was due to hospitalizations. Sure. Um, I'm not trying to say that the drug manufacturers are lying with their headline. It's just they design the study in such a way that they can say, oh, yeah, it reduced hospitalizations or death. Sure. When really it was mainly hospitalizations that was changed. Gotcha. Now, you were you mentioned random chance and you mm -hmm. had talked earlier about p-value. So mm -hmm. I got to ask, what was the p-value? So they did not report a p-value specifically for death. Gotcha. And so we do not know. We just know for the composite outcome, it was statistically significant. Gotcha. Um, it was less than 0.1%. So for the composite outcome. 0.1%? Wow. Yeah, so okay. P was less than 0.001. Okay. So Paxlovid definitely appears to work according to that analysis. It's just not as good as they're kind of trying to make it out to be. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. Okay. So the very last thing I want to touch on, and actually we're kind of running out of time, so this might be our last topic. Okay is the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. And so, as I mentioned, the p-value was less than 0.1%. So that is a statistically significant difference. But what does that really mean? So like, I, I don't know about you, but I have trouble thinking of random chance of less than 1% or 0.1%. Right. Like, what does that mean? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so we can do something called uh, a number needed to treat. So we can calculate that. I'm not going to go through how to do it, but I did calculate a number needed to treat here. And so we need to give 20 patients Paxlovid in order to prevent one of those composite outcomes, hospitalization or death, but we're just going to say pretty much hospitalizations. So 20 patients need to get Paxlovid in order to prevent one hospitalization. So based off of that, what do you think? Do you think that's a clinically significant difference? You know, so my mind way back when we started, this was 89% reduction. Like if I give you this, there is no chance right. that you're going to have anything bad happen to you. Right. Um, but now when we really look at it with the incidents, 
um, I have to give this to 20 folks Mm -hmm. to prevent one of them from going to the hospital. Right. Um, So does it work? You know, I'm going to say, yeah, it probably does, but you need to find that one person that it's going to work in maybe. Right. um, Using some clinical judgment. Um, not necessarily put it in the drinking water. Right, exactly. Because actually, I was going to say that there's eighty nine percent reduction. Let's put it in the water, right? Yeah. But yeah, it's not. It's not really that good. Um, and so the last thing I'm going to touch on here is since we know we need to treat twenty patients in order to get one person to not be hospitalized, how much does that cost? So at this point in time, Paxlovid is actually bought by the U.S. government. So everybody listening to this podcast that lives in the United States, you're paying for Paxlovid at this point in time with your taxpayer dollars. Um, so it costs $530 to treat someone with Paxlovid. And we know that we need to treat 20 people to prevent a hospitalization. So that means we need to treat, or that means it costs about $10,600 to prevent one hospitalization from COVID. And that seems like a lot of money. When I see that, I'm like, wow, with $10,000, I can pay off one tenth of my student loans. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's um, a whole nother topic, folks. Right, right. And we, we might talk about. Um, but that's a lot of money. Yeah. So to put it into perspective, a hospitalization for COVID costs about $11,000. So it is a little bit cheaper to give someone Paxlovid, which is probably why it's priced that way. Sure. sure. Um, so overall, uh, it appears that Paxlovid does work and it is probably cost effective, uh, but it's just not as good as advertised. It's not something we should be putting in the drinking water essentially. Yeah, yeah. And so just for the people at home, just kind of keep those things in mind while you're reading the studies. If a headline seems too good to be true, it probably is. They're probably being a little manipulative with how they're reporting those results. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, cool. So we are actually, uh, we had a couple other topics we wanted to touch on, but we're actually kind of running up against the clock here. You know, I'm working on an episode mm-hmm. um, about COVID, mm-hmm. COVID vaccines. Um, and there's a really interesting study um, about ivermectin okay. in COVID. And I think we need to talk about that in an upcoming episode. Okay. Yeah. And actually I have a couple of things to touch on that too. So I think that's a good idea. We'll probably table this discussion um, for another podcast, but I think overall, hopefully our listeners have a general idea of things to look at when looking at medical literature. Yeah. And then we can talk about that, those studies, that study and, and see, maybe it was good. Maybe it wasn't. Yeah. Maybe so. We'll find out for sure. So stay tuned. Uh, But yeah, so that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for sticking with us. We know this topic is a little bit dry, but hopefully it was still entertaining. We had some good stories for Mm -hmm. you overall. Um, But we're going to go ahead and close out the deli for today. I think Mark is already taking off his apron. Mm -hmm. He's ready to go. He's got places to be. I got to restock that snake oil display. Oh, mm, I thought we took that off formulary. (laughs) Yeah, we did. We did. (laughs) Uh, So thank you again, everyone, for listening. I hope you have a nice rest of your day. Um, Until next time, Ben and Mark out. We want to give a special thank you to Andrew Tingley and the crew at Ferris State University's television and digital media production program. Until next time, so long from the Health Deli, where topics are tasty, the takes are fresh, and the discussion is free. Please come back soon.